0: I was thinking about when I was uh, dating and then engaged to Janet Parsons, who is now the lovely Janet Marceau for 33 plus years, Um, go figure, Um, we were at Appalachian Bible College when I met her and we attended a church in downtown Beckley, there in the southern part of our state. And we were highly impacted by our pastor at the Beckley Regular Baptist Church. His name was Dudley Morgan. We loved him um, because he loved us. Uh, he was just a pastor. At that time, he was at a young family in his early to mid-40s. And he was full of enthusiasm. And uh, the Bible College students who attended there really connected with him. And he paid attention to us. And, and he brought a lot of joy to our hearts. What I remember about Dudley that to this day makes me smile... Uh, Is two parts. We used to have, and do you remember going to church where they had what they called before Sunday school opening exercises? I mean, you would think that would be like calisthenics of jumping jacks and push-ups. Do your opening exercises before you go to Sunday school. That's probably not a bad idea at the 8 o'clock service here at least. It was a gathering of the whole church. This was a, just a traditional Baptist church down there with Sunday school and church. We would gather in the auditorium, the entire church, for opening exercises. What we did there, then, before we split up and went to our classes, is sing together a little bit, and, and what Dudley started doing, and this is one thing I remember, and I am so thankful for this time. I've never forgotten. Dudley Morgan, Pastor Morgan, introduced me, us, to... The missionary biography and the life story of the great pioneer missionary John Payton in what was then the New Hebrides Islands of the South Pacific, inhabited by uh, primitive people who were cannibalistic. And Dudley would tell about seven or eight minutes of that story every week for many, many weeks. And the story of John Payton has embedded itself in me. It spills over from the pulpit from time to time. You've heard me reference about uh, paying the ship captain to um, row them to shore and then watching the ship go off on the horizon. And there they are on an island that they have no way off of. They don't know anyone. They don't have a house. And they watch the ship leave. Wasn't long after that, his wife is sick. His brand new baby is sick. They die of fever. He buries them in the sand along the shore, has to sleep next to their grave until the bodies decay enough that the indigenous people there on the island won't come and dig them up and want to eat them. And the stories go on and on and on and and then one day the gospel did its work and lives began to be transformed. That was John Payton. That was all because of Dudley Morgan. But the reason I bring up Dudley Morgan this morning is because I was thinking about how he often, as he dismissed opening exercises on Sunday morning, he, and we were leaving the room, he would say, now you all pray for me. Because, see, church was going to be next. He said, You all pray. I got a couple different messages going through my mind today. I don't know what God's going to have for us when we get back together. And we Bibles college students would laugh. You know, we were taught in homiletics class not to do it that way. You should have your homework done. You should be all planned out. Have your teaching, preaching schedule. I don't know what Dudley was thinking. I don't know if he, like, had worked on a couple different messages that week. I don't know if he pulled sermons from his old church where he had been, and he had a whole notebook full of sermons, and he was like, okay, Lord, which one's this morning? I don't know. It was just kind of funny how he would say, you all pray for me now because I don't know what God's going to have. That's a little bit how I felt late last night. You all should be praying for me because I don't know what this message is going to be. Um, I just needed to start this morning with two parts. First of all, a confession, which this is part of, and then a clarification. Uh, the confession is, is that I couldn't, get, I couldn't get Matthew 24 ready in time for you to make it a worthwhile sermon. I worked on it, don't get me wrong, I worked on it. Um, it is a difficult passage and we're, we're at verse 15 of Matthew 24 and the abomination of desolation and I couldn't get my understanding of it into outline form and out into sermon form to where I thought it would be most helpful to us. Because there's a lot to it. In the book of Daniel and in Matthew, Jesus refers to Daniel. And we have to go to the book of Revelation and see the future prophetic fulfillment of that abomination of desolation. And I just couldn't quite get it. And I kept at it and kept at it. And, and then finally it occurred to me, you better, you better pull a Dudley Morgan tomorrow morning. But we'll trust that God has his hand on these things in a most remarkable way. It did occur to me, even as we were singing the songs today that the songs that we've sung to prepare our hearts really fit this sermon that's on my heart today more than the sermon that was scheduled. And you'll be back next week, won't you, for Matthew 24. And I'll not disappoint you too much, I trust, if you came for a sermon on prophecy. We will touch upon it. That's my confession. Clarification goes back to last week's sermon, and I have to just take a minute and tell you that I'm really embarrassed about something. I was explaining to you in the sermon last week that when we approach these prophetic passages, that we need to be careful to be consistent with our Bible interpretation method, that's called our hermeneutic, that we would consistently interpret the scripture uh, regardless of what passage we're in. And I was telling you this, not off my notes, but out of my head, some things I had been thinking about, and I consistently, repeatedly called the kinds of passages that Matthew 24 is apocryphal. And I said, when we have these apocryphal passages, we got to be careful, because they're difficult. They're about Bible prophecy and... um, some people want to spiritualize it or make the symbolism mean something. And what I was simply trying to communicate last week is that I was I was saying to you that as much as possible, we're going to seek to make sense of the words that are here. We're not going to read into them. We believe that Jesus was teaching his disciples exactly what he wanted them to know and that they should have understood, for example, where we were supposed to be today. And he just says to them, like Daniel said, the abomination of desolation. And he knew that they would understand what he was talking about. Well, I used the word apocryphal when I meant to use the word apocalyptic, okay? Now, some of you are saying, it doesn't matter which word you use there, Pastor Van, they both work the same for me. (laughs) So, apocryphal, apocryphal is actually a word that has to do with writings that Lack credibility or might not be authentic, it is particularly used. Um, some people call them pseudographic they 're not authentic. The Roman Catholic Bible, for example, has books of the Bible added, Maccabees, and different books that are added that are called apocryphal. The Protestant church does not hold to that. The Catholic Church says that it 's part of scripture. We would say that the early church fathers never. Accepted those writings as authentic They are accurate history Don't get me wrong There are some benefit to those books But they are not inspired scripture as part of the, that's what apocryphal means. When we're in Matthew 24, we're not talking about apocryphal works. When we're looking at the book of Revelation, that's not apocryphal. You follow what I'm saying? I meant to say apocalyptic. Now, apocalyptic literature is a phrase that some of you would recognize, that apocalyptic literature has to do with cataclysm, end of the world, fire, volcanoes, earthquakes, and it has to do with prophecy scripture. The book of Revelation has a lot of it. Matthew 24 and 25 are part of apocalyptic literature, talking about the things that were prophesied at the end of the age. And so that's my clarification. And I'm sorry that I said that. And I'm not blaming Janet at all, but she never showed up till the third service. That's the kind of thing she'd have got me on in the first service right away. (laughs) Um, And I just can't preach as well when Janet's not here. She's already been here today and checked things out, and she told me to move along this introduction before she left. And uh, she's right, always right, always right. Um, Boy, men, don't you know that, and don't you appreciate that? Where would you be? You would be with me bunking at the Martinsburg Rescue Mission if it weren't for your wife. And you know it, you guys. You know it. You know it. So there's my confession. I couldn't get Matthew 24 ready. My clarification, let's understand that we're talking about apocalyptic literature, not apocryphal literature. And I'm, I really, I was mortified for about two and a half days. It took me a while to get over that when I realized that, that I had said that. Well, if you have notes nearby, as I was then saying, okay, Lord, if, if I can't reach a clear message here and handle this passage the way I want to handle it what should I do and immediately this title came to my mind Harvey, Irma, Job and Jonah what do we learn from storms hasn't that been on your mind it's been on my mind and today it's on our mind Um, we just would pray that God would be merciful and turn this storm away from the coast of Florida wouldn't we And I just thought, you know, I think it would benefit us with all that's been in the news. I mean, this week, you noticed, what, an 8.1 or something earthquake in Mexico. Uh, Somewhere there was a tsunami action going on. We have 50 inches of rain two weeks ago in Houston that had caused incredible devastation, even in that flat country where they don't have gorges to create flash floods. And now we have um, one hurricane uh, stacked up upon another I'm wondering what the future holds, where are these hurricanes going to hit, what's happening, all of these storms. And I thought, you know, the Bible spends a good bit of time talking about storms. Maybe it would be good for us as a church to focus upon storms this morning. If you want to follow along in your notes there and have a pencil or pen nearby, also get your Bible. You can go to Luke 21 right now. And I thought that we would, first of all, ask... Ask three theological questions, three theological questions about storms. The first question that is kind of common is this Are these storms that we're seeing on the news, Harvey and now Irma and whatever the new ones are named that are backed up out in the somewhere in the Caribbean or Atlantic, are these storms signs of the last days? Are these storms signs? Of the last days. Well, it is interesting, isn't it, that Matthew, you don't have to turn there, I wanted you to be in Luke 21, but in Matthew 24, and I referenced a couple of the verses. Remember what our Lord was talking about there? He references in 7b and then verse 8 a little bit the idea of cataclysmic events, which would be weather related, geophysical events like hail, for example, earthquakes. They are often referenced in apocalyptic literature as signs of the end of the age. We also know when the judgments begin to open up in the book of Revelation that there are some horrific pictures that are uh, demonstrated there like hailstone that are, you know, 100-pound hailstones and things that are going to fall out of the sky and crush people to death. And it's weather-related judgment from God. And, And you see the idea, are these storms signs of the last days? Well, let's see what Luke says in the parallel passage to Matthew 24. Luke actually gives us some insight here on a couple of different things, and it applies this morning to this question, this theological question Are storms a sign of the last days? Look what Luke says. Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the... Listen to this. Because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Now, at some scale, that's what we've been watching. Foreboding and these perplexing problems that are overwhelming to us. And here they are and they're fleeing and it's so tragic and difficult. And you say, it seems like, though we've had a a decade or so of relative ease of hurricanes specifically, could it be that, that the increase of these things, and there is inference in prophetic scripture... Jesus uses the word birth pangs, birth pangs, the idea that there is a, a coming on of, of activity that is then with the word picture of birth pangs and, and increased labor, right? Before the child is born, it gets even worse. And so you do have that idea. And so to answer the question, I think from Luke replying here, um, he says that people fainting with fear, foreboding for the powers. Look at what it says at the end of verse 26. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And so I would say that the answer to question number one, theological question number one is absolutely yes. I think that it is not foolish to believe that we are seeing in earthquakes and storms, and famine, and pestilences, an actual increasing amount of this. Now, I know that you can track through history an ebb and a flow of of events like this, and storm-related, weather-related events, and there's reasons for that. We have a cycle, and there seems to be some, say, a hundred year cycle, and things like that. But I think the answer to question number one is yes. Now, You go down to Walmart and start telling people, you need to know that Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma are signs of the times. It means we need to pay attention and the Lord is coming back. How are they going to greet you? Probably like 2 Peter chapter 3, and they're going to mock you. And They're going to say, come on, man, give me a break we don't expect people who don't know the Lord, people who don't know Christ, people who don't believe the Bible is authoritative, we don't even expect them to really understand how we think, do we? And in fact, we will be laughed at for the gospel and for standing upon the word of God, even mocked by college professors, mocked by scientists, and um, act as though, you know, we're just toothless and barefoot in West Virginia, so what else would you expect from you guys? And we are, aren't we? Toothless. <laughs> That is a powerful illustration right there, see? (laughs) Letter B. If one of my staff pastors did that, I would ream him out on Monday morning. (laughs) Letter B. Question number two. Are these storms judgment from God? Closely related... To this idea that storms can have a, a, a wake-up effect that these are the last days or birth pangs towards the last day, a prophetic implication, is the question, are these storms a judgment from God? Now we'll not turn to passage of scripture here, but let's just think about this for a minute. Um, has God used storms to judge people in the past? The answer is yes. The most profound illustration of that is Genesis chapter 6 when Noah was found walking in righteousness on the face of the earth and the rest of the world, their sinful attitudes, behavior and heart darkness was described as being so wicked and evil that it came up into the nostrils of God like some kind of a stench from the barnyard. And God says to Noah, build an ark, get on the ark. Noah called for them to get on the ark, but the door closed and what happened? He took a storm and he scrubbed off the face of the earth. We have a lot of other different passages or illustrations. Um, One. Another familiar and powerful passage would be 1 Kings 17 and 18. That is reflected upon by James in chapter 5, where he says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, using Elijah then as an example of someone who prayed, Stop the heavens from raining because, raining down water, rainwater, to water the earth, which plunged them into a famine, which caused economic and political chaos for Ahab and Jez- who were very wicked, and God was getting the attention of the people, and, and in a sense judging the land by withholding rain. All right. So on this one, that's an interesting question. On question number one, is it a sign of the last days? I would say emphatically yes. You can say with some biblical authority that absolutely these storms and the acceleration of these storms and the power and the increase of these storms could very well be part of the birth pangs. Question number two, is God using this to judge? For example, Houston. Houston, Oh well, we know that some Hollywood elitist blogged and said, it's Trump's fault, right? (laughs) And then another Christian Hollywood star responded and had a little bit of an uh, emphasis on God judging people through these storms. All kinds of opinions being thrown around out there. And Houston, for example, you could characterize Houston as a wicked city, couldn't you? Any major city in the United States is wicked. Any little town in the country in the United States is wicked. And so you could say there is a huge, wicked city and God just decided to scrub it. Well, I would hold back from that. It could be. So my answer to question number two is maybe. Maybe. But we don't know. And and I would say that our response, rather than condemnation and say, see what you deserve, Houston, for trying to get your preachers to shut down your pulpits a couple years ago from what you could preach and not preach and preaching about certain kinds of sin and you were going to be arrested from your pulpits and they almost passed a law like that and Houston was trying to do that and they were leading the way on that. And now they got what they deserve. I would say that's not a way for God's people to talk. And I would say that instead, we should be merciful and we should pray for them and we should love our neighbor as ourselves, and we should reach out and do everything we can to assist them. And I don't know what the future holds for fellowship and trips down I-95 to Florida or South Carolina or whatever will be alert. And there are opportunities to give, as we referenced last week, with the IFCA or Samaritan's Purse. So I would say on question number two, maybe that's probably not an area that we can speak conclusively to, although the Bible does demonstrate that. Question number three, then, has more to do with where I would go with how this is happening and why this is happening. And it's letter C, not letter A. Please make a correction. You can always tell when I do my own notes. Um, If God can reroute them, why doesn't he? These storms. If God could reroute these storms, why doesn't he? And now we've asked one of the great questions that is not so easy to answer because what we're really saying, isn't it, is why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why is it? Why is it? I remember one time when... I was a kid in southern Michigan, about 12 years old, and we were building a little house on the lake there that my dad uh, was able to build, and that's where I learned to pound nails and pour concrete and lay block a little bit and handle a shovel and things like that growing up up there. and Dad taught me a lot, and we lived, We were building this little house with a little walkout basement right on Christie Lake, a little lake there. And uh, storms used to roll in across that lake, and you could look over and see them come in the afternoon, the summer afternoon thunderstorm, real humid there, and and we had poured a concrete patio, and we were kind of inexperienced. My dad was a preacher, but he's kind of a handyman, and there we were pouring this concrete slab. My dad didn't have any money, and saved up a little bit of money, and got the concrete truck in there, got the truck out of there. We were finishing it and, and working it, and the, here the skies were darkening, and it looked like it was just going to let loose with a thunderstorm. And my dad was sick. Oh, He said, Van, go get that roll of his queen out of the garage, that plastic. We'll try to cover it. I don't know. It's going to mark up our concrete, you know, and just heart sick because he was so important, this little patio where we walk out into the yard. And he said, let's pray. And so we prayed. And don't you know, right at the last minute, the storm split. And one part went that way and one part went that way. And it never rained on my dad's concrete. Uh, Now, uh, do you think God answered my dad's prayer? My dad believed it. I mean, you can just let your mind go, oh, you know, it's you know, like Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Hey, why don't you save Eugene's concrete down there? Split the storm. Couldn't God do that? Couldn't God say, hey, spin that storm back out into the Atlantic? There's no reason to wipe out Miami. There's no reason to wipe out Tampa. There's no reason to wipe out that whole state of Florida. The football games were canceled after all. So what's going on? Psalm 148, verse 8, clearly says, Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word. That's just one sample verse that I pulled of many that that imply that God, with the word of His mouth, with the touch of His hand, can control the weather. And indeed, He is sovereign over the weather. What I want you to understand, though, is that And turn to Romans 8 with me, would you please, let's look at Romans chapter 8. If God can reroute them, why doesn't he? Well, this is a deep and complicated question. It is also related to a word picture that we use. It kind of goes along like this. Um, So let's picture God as a grandfather sitting on the porch of a cabin. And there's a gate and a little fence and a walkway down to a dock out to the lake and Grandpa's sitting on the chair, and he watches his little four year old grandson walk around the end of the cabin, walk down the path. The gate was left unlocked, unlatched. The little boy walks through the gate, walks down the path, walks across the pier, plops off the end of the pier, bobs a couple times in the water, and drowns while Grandpa continues to walk, rock on his chair on the patio. Is Grandpa culpable? Doesn't grandpa have a problem? He should have locked the gate. He should have shut the gate. He should have called out. He should have ran and got him. He should have jumped in the water. He's already lived his life. He should give do everything. That is the mindset that many people have when we're talking about this problem right here. That God has an ability to do things, and when He doesn't, then somehow He is less than benevolent. Somehow He is less than a loving God if He will sit back and just watch the state of Florida get plowed through today. We have entire uh, smaller, lesser-known Caribbean islands that I guess were essentially wiped off the face of of the ocean. And other islands in the Caribbean just horrifically damaged. If God just sits there and watches it happen, doesn't he have a problem? Isn't he guilty? Isn't he a mean God? Wouldn't you shake your fist in the the face of a grandpa like that? Well, there's part of the problem is, God is not a grandpa. And God cannot be reduced to human illustration. But what we need to do is go to a deeper theological issue... That I, I can't fully explain all of this, but let's look at Romans chapter 8 briefly and, and, and let's see what God says here, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 about this kind of thing. Beginning with verse 18 in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. Here's that childbearing illustration again in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The ultimate redemption of our bodies will just stop there. What's he talking about? Now, this is not a simple subject either, but let me tell you what he's talking about. Is he's talking about the fact that one day when Adam and Eve sinned, death and sin passed upon this universe, not just upon people, but that all of creation became under the curse of sin. Now, God certainly allowed that. God did not make them sin. God does not make anybody sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. He cannot be tempted with evil himself, and he tempts no one with evil. But somehow in God's sovereign plan, he allowed Adam. Part of it had to do with free will. Adam would not have had a free will if he could not have chosen to disobey. But what you have here is you have, then, the implementation of the curse of sin upon every molecule of this universe. Every molecule of this universe is under the curse of sin. And as a result of living in a sin-cursed universe and sin-cursed world, nothing is the way it's supposed to be. Our problem is we think that everything is supposed to be in order. Reality is everything is under the winding down, decaying influence of sin, and sin destroys. And Satan, the prince and power of this world, loves to devastate and destroy. I don't personally think he has very much control over the weather, Satan. Some people will say that he does. I don't believe that he does. But what you have is, you have systems that God ordained to be perfect when He created in Genesis 1 and 2. And He created, and it was good. And He created, and it was good. And He created, and it was good. And then Adam sinned, and no longer is it good. And so now you have ecosystems and geosphere and atmosphere that are under the curse of sin, and all of creation groans. And when you watch the TV today, and if... Florida gets wiped out Or parts of it get damaged What you will see Is nothing other than the residual of sin Could God stop it? We pray God be merciful And spin that storm out into the sea But we will also pray like our Lord Jesus Won't we? But thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven Who are we to tell God what to do? You see we're sin cursed as well that's one of the reasons why the resurrection of the body is such a wonderful thing, that when you put this body in the ground, First Corinthians chapter 15, like a seed, it decays and it rots, but then it sprouts forth and it comes out as an absolutely different body, transformed. And what went into the ground in decay comes out in glory, fit for glory. And that is nothing other than a picture of the overcoming of the curse of sin. Hallelujah, praise God, for the hope of the believer. In the meantime, cars rust, babies die, we get fired, people get electrocuted, roofs fall in, basements collapse, storms hit states and wipe them out. And it's not that God's not doing its job, it's that we live in a sin-cursed world, and this is the end result. Well, there's three theological questions Um, Devastation, destruction, and death are all a result of sin, if you're looking at your notes. They are all a result of sin. All creation groans, and normal, normal is trouble and difficulty. Trouble and difficulty is normal. Job says, man is born unto trouble just as sure as the sparks fly upward. And my dad used to say that when I was a kid, and every campfire and every... Every uh, trash barrel fire or whatever brush pile I've ever burned, every time I've seen a spark go up, I have never not thought that since I was a little boy. Yep, sparks still go upward. We're born unto trouble. So that means the wind could come and take the roof off my house too. And God is not negligent. He simply has not stopped the results and effect of the curse of sin yet. Part of when it happens will be part of why we will sing praise for all of eternity. And he will receive glory when ultimately redemption is done and final. Let me click off biblical historical reminders. Storms in the Bible. You could uh, maybe enjoy reminding yourself of some of these in your personal reading this week. Um, Let's just click them off. God allowed storms in the lives of the righteous, didn't he, in Scripture? There are numerous accounts where righteous people encountered storms. That one is Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. It had nothing to do with his sinfulness. And by the way, if you read read that passage, remind yourself to look for the spiritual warfare that's going on in the background as Satan is entertained in the presence of God and he wants to attack Job and God gives him permission. And there is actually a spiritual battle going on there and it has to do with the weather and storms come and knock down the houses and kill his children and wipe out his crops and kill his animals. But God, in the Bible, allowed storms to negatively infect, impact even righteous people. God used the storm to change the mind of a wicked king, Pharaoh, with hail and different other different um, effects from the physical world, turning water into blood in the time of the plague, ten plagues of Egypt. God used the storm to discipline. God used the storm to discipline a disobedient servant, Jonah. I want to tell you, we do not know what God is doing in many people's lives in Houston. God will use that storm in so many different ways in people's lives, and he did it in Scripture over and over and over. God used the storm to demonstrate the power of Christ, didn't he? They get in the boat. Jesus is asleep. They shake him awake. They think they're going to die, and he speaks one word, peace, be still. And they say, what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? who speaks to the wind, and the wind stops blowing. And he speaks to the rain, and the rain stops falling. What kind of man is this? And all you can say is, wow. And that happened because of a storm. God used the storm to redirect the preaching of the gospel. He rerouted the apostle Paul in captivity with a bunch of prisoners on his way to Rome. Gets blown off course in a horrific storm. Read about it in the last two chapters of the book of Acts. He redirected the preaching of the gospel because of a storm. I wonder who is going to hear the gospel because of the storm winds blowing. I assure you, there will be people who will hear the gospel and be born again because of these storms who otherwise would not have. And then you can ask the question, well then why, did God, why didn't God just do some other way to get him to the gospel? Well now, you're the pottery looking at the potter trying to tell him what to do. Don't do that. Practical spiritual lessons, humility, right? Humility. We are awed and humbled by the power of nature and reminded of our own limitations. Job chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How about uncertainty? Uncertainty, number two. We never know what a day will bring our way, do we? James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. James 4, 13 and 14. You don't know what, ne- what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't know what God has in store. And when we see these kinds of storms, we recognize that there is an uncertainty. Erwin Lutzer, former pastor of Moody Memorial Church, wrote just last week about Hurricane Harvey in a blog. And he wrote this. Natural disasters provide people with the conclusive evidence that life on earth at best is brief and uncertain. I thought that was a good sentence. We are reminded of the uncertainty of life and that we better prepare for. Number four is eternity. We better pray for eternity. Number three is priority. Number three is priority. We reorder our values in the middle of storms, don't we? Some time ago, Max Lucado, some of you like his writings. Max Lucado, a pastor and Christian author, was blogging when Katrina hit New Orleans a few years back. And he wrote this. No one laments a lost plasma television or a submerged SUV. No one runs through the streets yelling, my cordless drill is missing or my golf clubs have washed away. If they mourn, it is for people who are lost. If they rejoice, it is for people who have been found. He goes on to say that raging hurricanes and broken levees have a way of prying our fingers off the stuff we love. One day you have everything the next day you have nothing. That's priority number three there, isn't it? And then eternity, a reminder that we better be ready to face eternity. Well, I trust the Lord can use these thoughts to stir your hearts. Let's stand together, shall we? And let's, let's ask God about our priorities right now, and let's ask Him if we're ready to face eternity. I think that's important. How about you, with your head bowed? The storm came sweeping through and wiped out your property... Would you really lose anything that significant? And are you just pouring your life into it all? And for what? Or does God own it all? And the Lord gives and the Lord takes away and blessed be the name of the Lord. What are are your priorities right now? Let the storms remind us to prioritize our lives, to focus on people and the word of God, the two things that are eternal. Everything else is temporary. Plasma televisions, cordless drills, golf clubs. They're temporary. They're not going to last anyway. Jesus said, what good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? Most important thing we can pray is for people to find Christ in the middle of the storm and be ready for eternity. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. There are all kinds of tragedies and storms that can hit locally and individually. Are you ready to face eternity? To be with the Lord where he'll wipe away every tear, remove all sorrow and death and dying. And so, Father, our prayer continues to be that you would be merciful and turn this storm out into the Atlantic. Father, that you would spare destruction and devastation. But in the middle of it all, we will acknowledge you as a loving Heavenly Father. You have not lost control. You are sovereign over the affairs of the world. You will even take the devastating results of a sin-cursed world and turn it into good. Would you please do that? Would you show us how to live in light of these fragile days? In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go.